it's impossible to be a perfect executive and a perfect mother. I think if you're doing your best, if you're good enough, that is an amazing achievement. Welcome to Executive Realness, the show where we learn from the women behind the world's most innovative companies. This interview was recorded as part of a live Stackworld event. If you haven't already, make sure you download the Stackworld app today, available on Android and iOS. My guest today is a pioneer in the field of publishing. Baroness Gal Rebuck sits on the board of directors of the Penguin Random House Publishing Group and was chief executive officer there for 22 years. She also sits on the board of directors for the Guardian Media Group and is the chair of Somerset House Trust. She currently sits in the House of Lords as a Labour member. In this episode, you can expect to learn how to solve obstacles in the workplace, balancing the transition from colleague to boss, and the importance of adaptability in times of great change. I hope you enjoy this episode. Today, I have the privilege of interviewing Gail Rebuck DBE, a true powerhouse in the publishing industry. From her groundbreaking initiatives to her advocacy for gender equality and diverse voices, Gail's visionary leadership has reshaped global literature as we know it. She was awarded a CBE in the year 2000, was made a Dane in 2009, and became Baroness Rebuck in 2014. And if that wasn't enough, she also was the winner of the Verve Clico Businesswoman of the Year Award in 2009. Welcome, Gail. So what was it like for you as a little girl growing up in Marlborough? Well, you have to know quite what you were like, do you, when you were little? In fact, I grew up not in sort of leafy Maryland, but in um, on the Edgware Road um, near Paddington, so slightly more down market. I think um, my parents' expectations, I can laugh about it now, but um, both of them left school at 13 for different reasons. My mother, because she was the eldest in her working class family, and um, she had to go out and work, and she became a hairdresser, a very good hairdresser, actually. And my father, because he was the youngest of four in his family, second generation refugees, and he had to look after the family business. So for different reasons, they both left school very, very early. But the one thing they loved to do was travel. So it was always their obsession that their children, I was the oldest and I had a younger brother, um, he's driving me mad actually, um, was that we speak another language. And so my mother decided, even though she didn't speak any language at all, apart from English-ish, um, to send me to the lycée, the French school. And I went there from nursery. And so I, I kind of spoke French almost before I spoke English, which was very weird. However, her expectation for me, because obviously a woman, you know, growing up in the 1950s, she had, you know, certain views about what women did with their lives, but the apex of what she wanted for me was that I would become a bilingual secretary and work for a very successful boss, and then I would marry the boss. That was it. That was her ambition for me. And of course, I thought this was a ghastly idea, a terrible idea. And, you know, I, I didn't want that to happen. I never wanted to be a secretary, although I was one. And I wanted to be the boss myself. So there you go. <laughs> you knew you wanted to be the boss. Well, I think I knew it instinctively, if not actually, but um, yeah, that's how it emerged. 
One of the things that I love about your story is that books were really important to you from an early age, as they were for me. Growing up in Wolverhampton, they were like a gateway to this bigger, wider world outside of my teeny world. What was your relationship to books like when you were growing up? Well, exactly like yours. I mean, you know, my house was not a, a house full of books. It wasn't an intellectual house. In fact, we didn't have any shelves, you know, for books. And the only bedroom that actually eventually had shelves was my bedroom because I loved books. But my mother was very good and, and I think possibly to kind of shut me up, she used to make sure I was taken to the library once a week. So we used to walk from um, Paddington to the Maribyrn Library and that was it. I mean, I just loved the smell of the library, you know, sort of slightly musty kind of smell of books. And then I'd look along all these shelves and I'd find these series of books. And the only thing that I would be worried about was that, because you were only allowed, I think, eight books a week, that I would run out of books to read before we went back to the library the next week. And so for me, probably the same for you, is that from the very narrow set of expectations in which I grew up, books just opened my mind to other worlds and other possibilities. Not that I ever thought I could visit them, but they were there. They were part of my imagination. Do you remember any characters of when you were young that really stood out to you? Oh, there were so many. I can't, I mean, I can't remember anyone in particular, but I just loved kind of alternative children's experiences, all sorts of um, series set in girls' boarding schools, you know, which was, I mean, completely unknown to me, you know, being in a kind of, in, you know, day school in, in, in London. So I just, I just loved the kind of the variety and female friendship was something that really came out of books for me. Historical novels when I got a bit older, you know, I, I had a very mass market taste, frankly. So um, I don't think I'll share exactly who my heroines were. They weren't very impressive. But so did I. It was really just about devouring whatever was available. I remember like I would literally read anything, whether it was a religious book or a mass market paperback. I just absolutely loved it. And you said earlier about your parents' expectations for you, particularly your mother being quite narrow. Was university ever part of that expectation? Because if they left school at 13, I imagine they couldn't even comprehend that you might want to go to university. What was that like for you? No, university was a lot of word that was ever mentioned in my household. Essentially, um, you know, as a child, you were being prepared to go out to work. So when I was 14, I got my first Saturday job in Selfridges. I pretended I was 15 and a friend of mine introduced me and I worked on the Chanel counter. In fact, it was right at the entrance of Selfridges. I was rather good. I used to sort of sell a lot of Chanel perfumes. So I, it was always about earning money. And when I was at school, I was doing first year of A-levels and a Spanish teacher said to me, of course, Gail, when you go to university, and I looked up, and I almost said, what's university? I mean, it wasn't on my horizon at all. And she said, but of course you'll go to university. And so I went home and I started, you know, looking up universities. And I thought, well, this sounds interesting. I rather like that. So I did apply to go to university. And when I got in to the University of Sussex, my father's reaction was, why do you want to do another four years of books? Haven't you had enough books, basically? He really couldn't understand it because it wasn't a pathway to anything except more reading, more learning, as opposed to where they thought I should be going, which was into the workforce and making money. 
you studied a degree that has a very peculiar title to me, so I'd love to know what it was. Intellectual history, it sounds like my dream degree. What did you actually do on that? Um, well, I actually applied to read French because that's something I knew I could do. And I was completely unprepared. I was interviewed by Quentin Bell, this very famous member of the Bloomsbury set, not that I knew it at the time. And I was such a little parvenu, you know, and, and I remember in the interview, and it was a wonderful day, the sun was shining, they just mown the grass at Sussex, students were lazing around, and I thought, oh, I like this place. Because um, in the 1960s, it was the kind of counterculture university. And I said to him, well, I don't know if I want to come to university immediately. I might like to take a year off. I mean, honestly, I was completely pathetic. And he actually offered me a place and gave me the opportunity to take a year off, which I, which, which I took. So I went to read French. And, and while I was there, I heard that one of the tutors, because it was rather like Oxford and Cambridge, you had a tutorial system, which was very lucky, um, was starting a course called Intellectual History. Um, which was wonderful. There were only four of us on it. And um, you could basically do anything. It was like a smorgasbord of different subjects. So you did a little bit of history, a little bit of philosophy, a little bit of literature. And so I could just kind of jump around the university and go to the most amazing lectures on the modern European mind. I never had to become particularly good at anything and could just sort of you know, be a bit like a kind of intellectual magpie. So it really suited me. This is a dream degree that I really think we need to bring back <laughs> and I would be the first one to sign up. You know, it's really interesting because you're at Sussex, which as you said, was very counterculture radical in the 1970s, but also had this long history of the Bloomsbury set, Virginia Woolf, who's an icon for me, all of that energy. But in 1970, Britain was in total turmoil. There were constant strikes. The 70s was a very, very turbulent time for the country. How did this intersection of birthplace of like feminist writers, the counterculture, what was going on in the macro trends in Britain, how did that influence your political viewpoint as it stands even today? Hugely. I mean, it was a very radical university. It was much more left than I have become later. Um, but of course, in those days, when you went to political meetings, they were mostly run by men and the women were there to kind of make the coffee and, and serve it, essentially. And I didn't like that at all. So the consciousness raising groups of women, now those were really interesting and exciting and different kinds of conversations were being had there. And then, as you say, the backdrop was strikes, demonstrations. And then I spent a year at the University of Toulouse um, I think that was in 72 or 3, and all the 68 radicals had come to Toulouse. And it was rather wonderful because the university was on strike for the entire year that I was there. So that was wonderful. I, mean, I didn't do any work at all. But it did have a dark side to it because there were demonstrations. And my boyfriend at the time was from Guadeloupe, and it was quite dangerous. There were a lot of fascists around. And, you know, when the demonstrations happened in France, it was a bit like the French Revolution. They were very scary. I mean, you know, they were violent. And, um, you know, it brought the reality of politics home to me in a way that was very different from the UK, which, of course, I went on my fair share of demos, but they were slightly different. So you mentioned earlier about women making the tea, your expectations from your mum of being a secretary, and you chose to enter a very male-dominated field. 
I've heard stories that the only women in publishing in that in those days were secretaries and assistants. What made you choose publishing as a field upon graduation? Well, it wasn't like I had a big choice. I mean, I graduated and thought, oh my goodness me, I have a degree. I can do anything. And then I went to employment agencies and they said, and I said, I'd like a job in the media, you know, publishing, television, magazine. I, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And they said, can you type? I said, no. In those days, can you imagine? We didn't type. And can you do shorthand? Oh, what shorthand? I had no idea. Oh, we can't possibly give you a job. So go and do a secretarial course. So I went on a six-week touch typing course where they also taught me the rudiments of dictation. I was hopeless at that. And then I went back to the same, you know, agencies afterwards. And then they said to me, oh, yes, well, you can type now and, and you can do shorthand, not that I could. Um, but you've got a degree. We can't put you forward for a secretarial job because you'll be bored. So, I mean, you were kind of damned if you do and damned if you don't. So eventually, by dint of trying, I saw that there was a job for a production assistant in a startup uh, book packager. It wasn't a publisher. They used to produce books for publishers. And production was the kind of, you know, the nitty gritty end where typesetting, design, printing... And it was working for one guy who interviewed me and then had the misfortune of hiring me because I was the most hopeless secretary in the entire world. But I loved it because I was called assistant, not secretary. And I was there for a year and they sent me on a, um, a day release. Um, you went to course. the London College of Printing. The right? LCP, that's right. That yeah. nitty gritty you said. Exactly. That's right. I, I actually learned how to bind a book and hot type, none of which is used today, of course, but it was very useful. And because I was the, at the literally the cutting edge of, of publishing in those days, dealing with printers, I came across the most extraordinary sexism because I'd be given certain tasks to do. And I'd phone up the printer and they say, sorry, dearie, can we speak to your boss? And that used to drive me completely nuts. How did you respond to that? Frostily. <laughs> I said, you deal with me or you don't get the job, basically. Um, but I learned a lot and I came across sexism. And I, in those days, you developed a carapace. You know, you just kind of ignored it and moved on. You're starting out in a packaging, which is, I didn't really know what a book packager was. So they're the people who produce the books that the publishers make. How did you actually make the move from being a packager to a publisher? I always wanted to work in editorial and they did offer me a job in editorial there, but it was children's books and that wasn't really where I wanted to be. And so I went back to a different kind of agency and said, I want to be a publisher and I want to be an editor. And um, they said, oh, no, 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 you and, you know, 7,000 others. And I remember this one woman who was meant to be the hot kind of person to get jobs, you know, through. And I said, look, I'm going to sit outside your office until you take me seriously. And I did sit there. And then she sent me for an interview to this little book packager, also in North London, called the Barry Group, where they had a couple of funny little imprints, Robert Nicholson Publications and um, business books, and they needed an editor. And I got the job. And I walked into this office with a couple of filing cabinets, and that was that. That was my job. I mean, I didn't I hadn't a clue what to do. That's really interesting because it seems to me like you've always been at startups. You said a couple of filing cabinets, and the other one was a bit of a startup situation. 
Tell me about when you actually became co-founder of Century Publishing, because at this point now, you're rising in publishing, you're getting poached, you're getting people emailing you, no longer like knocking on the agent's doors. How did Century, which is your first shareholding position, happen? Yeah, well, there was after this funny little um, job, I was asked to start a paperback list for the Hamlet. So there was an in-between and phase. So, yeah, that was my first, what I would call, proper publishing job. And that's when I bought Fat is a Feminist Issue, the first book that I ever bought. And so that was my learning ground. And I was there for about four years. And it was in that period that I got the offers. And um, the, the offer that, that I decided to take was this startup, was a colleague of mine who was starting a publishing house, which wasn't called Century at that point. There's another funny story around that. And I decided to join them, but I had to find £6,000 to put into the company. You are in an incredibly sexist industry where women are typically seen as secretaries and assistants. You've then risen up the ranks, published Susie Orbach amongst others at Hamlin. And actually now you're in demand and you decide to take the role that offers you equity in the business instead of just being an employee. Did it feel like a big deal for you at the time? Because this is like a rare, a rare thing, right? You actually own part of the company instead of just working for it. Well, of course, I didn't know any of that at the time. I mean, I wasn't aware like you are today. Um, but I was aware of the fact that publishing was changing because what had happened in the past is you had hardcover companies who sold paperback rights to paperback publishers. I was a paperback publisher who were much more marketing orientated. And the idea behind the company that we started, Century, was that we would do both. We would do everything. We would bring a different sensibility to the old world of original hardcover publishing. And I found that exciting. And they were a great group of people, very entrepreneurial, all very brilliant in their different ways. I was in charge of nonfiction. And it just seemed like a fun opportunity. The £6,000 was a problem, though, because I didn't have £6,000. Um, but I remortgaged my flat and, you know, took a risk. What were your parents saying around this time? Um, they weren't involved in the decision. <laughs> I think they probably thought I was mad. Matt, yeah, I thought you were crazy. <laughs> so how would you describe your mindset being different, having equity as opposed to being an employee? Do you feel like your energy in your, to your work change? Did your relationship to your work change? That's an interesting question. I mean, the thing about publishing is that it's not a job, it's a vocation. You do it because you care about books, because you believe that books can change the world and change individuals. So I've always had a vocation about what I was doing, even before I was a, a, a stakeholder. But I think being a stakeholder just gave you that extra dollop of motivation and sense of responsibility. Um, but we weren't independent for very long. I mean, we started in 82. By 85, we were involved in a reverse takeover with Hutchinson and became Century Hutchinson, which then had a board. So, I mean, although I was still a stakeholder, it, it had been watered down significantly. And then we sold to Random House in 89. So it was all quite quick. My you know, moment of independence and entrepreneurship. 
this sounds, you know, when I was doing my research on this, this period of 1985, there were almost 20 different mergers, acquisitions, takeovers of various publishing houses. Just describe what the energy was like at the time. It seems like deals were being done almost every week. I think there were a lot of deals. And I think that was because the environment was changing. Tim Waterstone started Waterstones at the beginning of the 1980s. So the UK went from a whole series of independent bookshops to high street chains. WH Smith grew up, supermarkets began selling books. Um, and this is even pre-Amazon, you know, actually um, supplying books through the internet. And so the old models of these little tiny kind of scruffy publishing houses you know, not being terribly professional, only publishing hardcovers. That all went out the window. And um, the Hutchinson deal, Hutchinson was owned in those days by London Weekend Television, and it wasn't really going anywhere. It had 300 employees. It had companies in Australia, New Zealand, um, you know, all over the base and, uh, and a warehouse. And we were 23 people, but we were very successful in our funny little way. And so it was a reverse takeover. And we had a board, a proper board, even though we weren't a public company. And the chairman of London Weekend Television was the chair of our board. And it just, it just felt different. There was a febrile atmosphere. And as I said, it was only a few years later that it, it wasn't working as well as they thought it could work. And one of our independent board members, because I was on the board, had had a conversation with Simon and Schuster and uh, they were keen to buy us. In those days, Simon Schuster was the kind of epitome of, of aggressive American publisher. And we thought, now nah, that wouldn't really suit us. So I had a, a lunch with the um, UK CEO of Random House, who was funnily enough offering me a job. Um, so we went out to lunch and they owned all the best literary imprints in the UK, Jonathan Cape, Chatham, Windus, a share of Virago and the Bodley Head. And he offered me a job um, running the Bodley Head. And I said to him, there are two problems there. I said, there's three actually. Number one, you have a perfectly good person running Bodley Head as far as I'm concerned. Number two, have you noticed I'm seven months pregnant with my daughter who's sitting over there and now all grown up? And I said, number three, I'm a shareholder in the company that I'm in. So why would I leave it and come and work for you? But there is something interesting here because um, Random House was owned by the Newhouse family, Condé Nast, you know, in the US. I said, we might be for sale. I, I said, a lot of the people on the board don't want to sell, but if Cy Newhouse were interested, I think this is the moment to kind of pounce because the offer that we have, we're not very keen on. So he immediately hot-footed it over to America and Cy didn't do any kind of due diligence but came in with this kind of staggering sum per share, which even the founder couldn't say no to. So we were sold. I mean, literally in a couple of weeks. I have to say, it's incredibly bold of you to be seven months pregnant, being poached for a job, there's a board that doesn't want to sell and you're effectively orchestrating a deal. I know. It didn't seem like it at the time. I thought I was doing the right thing for the company. Because in those days, you know, we were very focused on the next step. We didn't think about all the angles. We were talking about this just before, but I think your generation, the generation between us, 
you know, you tend to think about all the angles, whereas my generation just had one thing in mind, which was going forward, doing the right thing, in my view, the right thing for the company. And I didn't really sweat the kind of the issues and the problems. So when you say it like that, yes, I think, who was this person that was doing it? It doesn't feel like me, but it seemed like the right thing to do at the time. So just two years after that deal, your former co-founder at Century was removed from CEO and you were installed as CEO, which again was a pretty bold move. You were offered the top job. By now your daughters, Grace and Georgia, were just five and two. You'd never been a CEO before. You had this family that you, of entrepreneurs that you'd effectively grown up with in business. There hadn't even been a woman CEO of any publishing house before. What was that like and why did you say yes? Well, that was a really difficult kind of pivotal moment um, because the Frankfurt Book Fair was taking place and things weren't working in, in the sign new house, newly conglomerated um, Century Hutchinson and all the other imprints. Um, and the big boss, a man called Alberto Vitali, decided he wanted a change. And the change meant removing my former partner, you know, the person who'd started Century, who brought me in. And he said to me, you know, we've decided you should take over. And I immediately lost my voice, you know, but Frank's like, you talk all the time. And so I did literally lose my voice. And then the next day flew back to London. He said, you've got 48 hours to decide. So flew back to London. It was the Booker Prize. And um, Ben Oakley also won the Booker Prize. And so everyone went out and got drunk and all the rest of it. Meanwhile, I'd spoken to my husband and said, well, this is not great timing and all the rest of it, but I've been offered this job. And he, you know, bless him, said, you should just do it for goodness sake. I mean, easy for him to say he didn't have to do it and the house and the kids and all the rest of it but you know so I thought okay I'll I'll say yes so I did say yes and the night after the booker the big boss from America took my former partner out for breakfast and told him that he was no more and then called a meeting in the top floor boardroom to which I was invited where he told all the publishers, all the leaders of the company, Anthony is leaving, and Gail is your new CEO, me who'd been their colleague. And then he said, Gail would like to say a few words. And I hadn't, of course, prepared any words at all, but I kind of somehow got a few words out. And then everyone was so shocked. I just looked at their eyes. They were just horrified at this news. And Anthony's wife was also a senior fiction buyer in the business, so she was not happy at all. And a lot of the other people were very much his people. So my office, this was on the eighth floor. My office was on the ground floor. I went back down into my office, and then the big boss comes down a few minutes later, and um, he opens his jacket and takes out a crumpled piece of paper and says, Gail, on the flight over, I started writing a press release. Here it is good luck, I'm flying back to New York. And that was it. That, it you know, <laughs> it sounds, I could literally picture this as a movie already. It sounds so dramatic, the award ceremony, the next day, the announcement. But it's really unique, but also a common scenario that I've heard amongst my founder friends, women who are formerly in a team, and then they become the boss of people that they used to work with. What is it like when your colleagues 
are now your subordinates. How did you navigate that relationship from being friends with them to now telling them what to do? Well, I think the, the, the first thing you learn is that you have no friends because the power relationship is such that it, everything changes. People stop talking to you honestly and moaning and telling you the problems and just start telling you what they think you want to hear. And obviously I had a whole load of people who didn't think I should be there at all. So they were, you know, behaving in a slightly different way. And then there were other people who were just lovely. I remember um, the head of publicity at Hutchinson, who I made comms head, um, came in and she was really helpful. She actually wrote the press release. And I remember her coming in to see me a few days later and saying, look, Gail, I know you've got this really important meeting, but my son is doing a play at school. I said, oh my God, of course, you've got to go and see it. That's much more important than our meeting. And she stopped and she said, you know, it's the first time I have ever been honest about needing to leave work for one of my children. I could never have, set, have said that to a man. I always had to pretend someone was ill or whatever. And she said, it is just completely different to have somebody who really understands you know, the hierarchy of importance of family. So I was very touched by that. So there were some lovely moments, but basically you realize when you, you know, get put into a position of authority that you're on your own. So talk to me about those first hundred days as the CEO now, what was your agenda? Because it was losing money. Um, there were massive changes that were happening in digital distribution. What was your focus for those first 100 days of being CEO? I was really assuming I knew nothing. It was a company I'd worked in for many years. I was running a division of it, but I didn't have the whole, you know, picture. So I spent my 100 days trying to articulate what needed to be done and talking to people and figuring out a plan. So I didn't assume I knew everything. I just, I tried to wipe my mind clear and, 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 and start again. And quite quickly, I got a plan. Um, there were certain things like putting the sales forces together I did immediately. And then once I had the plan sorted out, I had a kind of vision which was to balance creativity and efficiency, because I realized they were totally interdependent, that, you know, without efficiency and profit, there could be no creativity, but without creativity, there would be no profit. So people had to kind of understand that. But what had happened was that all these companies had been bought, put together without any kind of consolidation. The boring stuff hadn't been done. The fun stuff, the acquisition had been done, but the boring kind of cultural integration, you know, looking at different ways of optimizing, uh, you know, certainly support systems, none of that had been done. So I realized that this whole company that where people had experienced so much change because they'd been acquired or they'd been merged with or whatever had happened to them, it was all going to happen again. And so I instinctively realized that I had to tell everybody what I was going to do at the same time, and I called everyone together at a town hall, probably before town halls were thought of, and I explained the vision and what the why. 
you know, I told the story of what I thought had to happen. And I said, look, some people are going to lose their jobs and this is just really awful, but we are going to act in the most honourable way we can without, you know, with all sorts of advice and counselling and whatever. And then, so everyone heard it at the same time. And this production director from a literary imprint saw me afterwards and he was, I guess he was in his 60s, he said, Gail, I know I'm going to lose my job, but I just want you to know that I think you're doing the right thing. I understand what you're doing. And I just could have hugged him. Honestly, it meant so much to me that that actually telling the story, being honest, being vulnerable, being open about what needed to happen for the greater good of everybody um, was something that even he, who could see that he was not going to be a winner in this, could accept. And I was very touched. So you mentioned earlier about that creativity and efficiency, which I would also describe as creativity and commercial understanding within the same brain. You are someone who is amazing and incredible at that. But also, I was really struck by your boss's boss's boss, Cy Newhouse, who owned Random House at the time. Cy Newhouse owned Condé Nast, a bunch of other incredible media titles, and He's a very private person, but in some of the biographies that I've read, his name's popped up a lot. Anna Wintour, Tina Brown, if any of you have read Tina Brown, absolutely loved, loved that book. And it seems to me that he has an eye for strong women who are creative and commercial. What do you think that he saw in you in addition to that, that made you part of this circle of editors, leaders, CEOs that looked after his titles? I used to go to New York two or three times a year and we would always have lunch in the same place in, you know, one of those kind of fancy hotels where power lunches yeah. took place. He was a man of few words. He often used to bring um, either his son or one of his nephews along. And um, I always remember one time I'd flown over and the airline had lost my luggage. And I was moaning about this at lunch, except I did discover personal shoppers in New York, which I've never looked back, frankly. And he just looked at me and said, I never check my luggage in. You know what I mean? I always, you know, so I felt really mortified. And I thought, well, you don't have to check your luggage in. You always wear the same <laughs> right, thing yeah. at a t-shirt or whatever. But the other time I had lunch with him, which was after I'd turned the UK around and it was making money, and we went out to Claridge's. And I said to him, Sai, we were losing money, we're now making money, but what's your objective? What's your return? Would you, you know, normally in publishing, it's quite low, it's about 5%, but I think we might aim for 10, possibly more. And he kind of went like that. He said, oh, you decide, you know, whatever you think is right. And then he kind of said, what I really want to talk about is this new translation of Proust. You know, that was the kind of man that he was. But I saw his relationship at different parties with Anna Winter and with Tina, and he loved being entertained. I mean, he just loved gossip. He loved being entertained. So providing you chatted on about things, business, other things, books, whatever, he was perfectly happy. One of the things I've actually noticed being around experienced, powerful people is they want new information all the time. 
And because they're not often on the ground anymore, they're relying on you as a conduit for that newness and that information. That's really interesting. I hadn't thought of it like that, but you're absolutely right. You know, I was his point person, you know what I mean? And I could sort of come to him with the new and, and he'd find that fascinating. So his leadership style seemed very relaxed. <laughs> as a young... Until he sold us. <laughs> I was very hands-on. How would you describe your leadership style as a young CEO versus at the end of your 22-year career at Penguin Random House? Were you role-playing leadership styles? I know for me, I very much felt that I had to be like this masculine dominant leader. And it took me a while to realize that actually bringing my feminine energy to my leadership role was really, really important. What was that like for you trying on leadership styles? Well, I think it depends on what needs to be done because to begin with, I had to learn to be a leader from being a manager and I had to be directive because we were transforming the company. So I had to kind of get people on board, hopefully inspire them and get things done. When I started playing around with the editorial side, the creative side, it had to be much more relational and much flatter and more inclusive and discursive. And in those days, when I was a young uh, leader, there was a lot of talk about the feminization of leadership. Um, a lot of psychologists were talking about it because most companies at the end of the day were pyramids with the man at the top. And I, I felt uncomfortable in that role. I mean, if people said to me, you're powerful, I kind of shrank a bit. I didn't like, you know, my generation didn't have a, comfortable relationship with the notion of power. We might have been powerful, but we we didn't like to think we were kind of tough. And Why do you think that is? Because I think it's actually still rings true today. We find that in our stack member network, if we use these words like ambitious or powerful, that there's a recoiling to that. Why that's do you think that's still is hurled at women as an insult, you know, from the time that I first came into the workforce? Oh, she's ambitious, a front page of the Daily Mail. You know, I promoted a bunch of women front page of the Daily Mail, promoting all these terribly ambitious women, terrible, ghastly oh, things. Dear. <laughs> yes, exactly. Oh, dear. So I think it was thrown at us as, as an insult that we were somehow these kind of, you know, tough, unpleasant, nobody liked us. You know what I mean? So you were unlikable and tough. And that's not quite, I think, how women like to feel about themselves. So there was a lot of talk about the feminization of culture, about the importance of softer skills, which, of course, now today is what everybody talks about. Um, but in those days, it was considered fairly new. You're on the front page of the Daily Mail for hiring women. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, all sorts of ghastly things happen. There were other things I read that the media wrote about you, including this quote by Private Eye, that you were a Barbie doll who crunched diamonds between your teeth, which I find absolutely horrendous. What did it feel like, because you're quite a private person, to be at the centre of media attention, negative media attention by what I'm guessing is probably male editors, male publishers, when you are also in the media yourself? Did it feel like there were fighting their own side a little bit. Yeah, it was awful. I didn't like it at all. I always remember um, saying to Grace, who's here, whenever Private Eye said that, 
I think Grace, you're about three or, and you rather liked your Barbies. And I said to you, this is what I've been described as. And she looked at me and said, but mummy, you're nothing like a Barbie doll. So, <laughs> so it's wonderful having kids that kind of bring you back to work, you know, and think, okay, no, this is just kind of crazy piece of, you know, stuff. But, um, but no, it wasn't, it wasn't nice. You were really, really early on in being part of a women in publishing network. I think that was even prior to your CEO. Oh gosh, yeah, 79. Yeah. yeah so when I was a baby. Yeah. Tell me what that women's network did for you and how it helped you in times like this. Oh, it was amazing. I mean, uh, a group of women met up in a scruffy pub and decided to launch women in publishing. And I was there. And the very first thing we did was have a an assertiveness training um, course where we sat in a room rather like this in a circle and there was a convener who kind of told us how to ask for things, more money, another job, I mean, whatever. And for me, I was like, my jaw dropped. I mean, I'd never, I'd never been told this before. I didn't know it was possible to do that. I mean, I was very young. And we progressed this group of women, you know, over many years and some great writers became part of it. And it's interesting, a few years ago, some young women from Transworld kind of called me up and said, oh, we're going to start an organization for women in publishing, so I've heard that before, um, called The Flip, that's right. And I was encouraging because I'm always encouraging to women who want to start something, but in my head, I was thinking, been there, done that, do we really need it today? And, you know, the day they launched it, the flip, they had 4,000 inquiries on the day they launched it. And that taught me something. I realized, oh, my goodness me, we haven't made as much progress as I thought. And so they're going well today. You said you were encouraging and always encouraging. And that's something that I've noticed when I watch interviews with you and your authors you had to go from a very directive, like first 100 days, we've got changes to make, to then move into a more nurturing coaching. I've watched videos of you talking to authors and I'm like, wow, she's so supportive. She's so kind. What is that intense relationship like with authors? Because effectively it's talent. And I didn't realize that the CEO of that publishing house had such a close relationship to their authors. Well, I suppose it, because I was an editor first, so in those days I would have the very close, I mean, I was literally editing the books. Um, and then when I became CEO, I, I wasn't just going to kind of drop the authors that I knew, even though the other editors took, you know, the kind of day-to-day -day, um, role. But even today, I still, there are some authors, I read each of their chapters when they've, <laughs> when they've um, finished them, you know, as the book goes along. And I think it's because I'm curious. I'm just so interested in what they're writing. I think it's a great privilege if it's a great writer to be one of the first to read their manuscript. And all any author wants to hear the first time round is, it's fantastic, it's completely brilliant. And then you let that settle. And then you can like come in and say, well, what about this and what about that? But, you know, you have to kind of got to understand that they've been well, you know yourself, you've just finished a book, you know, you're there early in the morning, late at night, on weekends, on your own, you know, what you don't want is a whole load of do this, do that. You just want to feel 
that it's landed and it's landed well. And then the shaping can, you know, and the marketing and everything else that goes with it can happen later. But I was just, I loved it, you know. So as far as I was concerned, what was the point of running a publishing house if you weren't close to the authors? And I'm completely in awe of the creative process. Fiction, nonfiction, with nonfiction, I'm always learning new ideas. With fiction, it's just other worlds that are introduced. And I just think it's such an incredible privilege. Why wouldn't you be there as a facilitator, you know, as, a, as, as, as an enthusiast, as a cheerleader? I mean, there are some publishers nowadays who talk about their brand of the imprint, which is more important than the author. I think the author, they are the most important for me. How do you spot talent? Tell me about how Fifty Shades of Grey came about. Well, um, <laughs> Fifty Shades of Grey, it is kind of an interesting story because um, uh, it was actually discovered by a US editor in, in our group. And she was talking to a group of mothers outside her kids' school who were saying, have you read this book, Fifty Shades of Grey? It was published by a little um, Australian ebook publisher. And she came across it, really liked it, decided to buy it. And I read about it. It was a tiny piece in The Guardian about this English woman who'd written this um, erotic romance that was climbing the ebook bestseller list. And I looked at it and I was on my way to a sales conference and I thought, must do something about this, must get hold of this book. And then I thought, no, somebody else will do it. You know what I mean? I've really got to kind of trust that with the hundreds of publishers, someone would do it. So I was opening the sales conference and I'd finished my bit and I was sitting outside and I got a call from America to say, we've acquired this book and um, do you want to publish it in the UK? I said, yes, of course. I was just reading about it this morning. But it had a huge price tag attached to it. And I said, yes, yes, absolutely, yes. But then I had to find someone to publish it. And they all turned me down, all the different divisions. It was either haven't heard of it, not well written, um, too expensive. So in the end, I had to say that corporate would take the financial risk. And one of our imprints, you know, embraced it and published the book. And it took six weeks, six tense, nail-biting weeks, where every day I'd say, where is it? You know, is it on the bestseller list? Is it going up? You know, no, no. And then funnily enough, I think she was on Lorraine or one of those kind of daytime TV programs. And it, it, was, it just kind of ignited something. It was like a match. And social media were then full of 50 shades. And I remember the publisher who originally didn't want to publish it coming into my office to say, Gail, finally, we have to reprint 50 shades of, you know, gray. I said, God, thinking she'd say 20,000 copies. She said, we have to reprint 2 million copies. And the UK has run out of silver ink because we use silver ink on the cover. And I mean, it was a complete phenomenon from then onwards. And I traveled the world and I saw women reading it in India, you know, just everywhere. And it was just extraordinary. And that is one of the big shifts in publishing because before social media, you know, before Amazon, 
I don't think, I, I call them Himalayan peaks of books. You'd have bestsellers, you know, books that would sort of sell a lot of copies each year. But Fifty Shades was unbelievable. It's really interesting how you tell the story because even though you're the leader, you've still got these departments, houses or imprints in another organisation. It might just be one department versus another department. They weren't willing to take the risk initially. Why was that? And how do you encourage your team to be able to take risks and fail, potentially fail? Well, it, I think part of it was no one wants to kind of do a book that's recommended by the CEO. You know, oh my gosh, she's coming. <laughs> Is that she's, a thing? Got, she's got a book. Where can we hide? You know, <laughs> please go away because people like to kind of find their own books. Um, I think this one came with a very, very high price tag, and that was problematic. Um, they hadn't acclimatized themselves to it. You know what I mean? There are all sorts of reasons. But I always had to be quite careful with with books that people, I realized that if if it came from me, they probably wouldn't want to do it. So I had to kind of... Socialize the idea. Yeah, that's the one <laughs> trick that I learned. So obviously Fifty Shades are great amongst many, many other books that you've published have been phenomenal bestsellers. But what do you do in times of crisis when things are not going so well? What you mean when the whole company is not doing well? Well, when something bad might happen, there's a court case, for example. You know, oh, you'll get down brown court case. Yes. Well, that was weird. That was very strange because um, we had a brilliant young publisher, Bill Scott Carr, who's the only publisher in the world who published all of Dan Brown's books. So all the books before the Da Vinci Code. Everywhere else in the world, he'd moved publishers because the books never sold, even Angels and Demons, which in many ways I think is as good as, you know, his 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 kind of main book, as it were. And he had the whole backlist there. And um, then Random House published The Da Vinci Code and it became an immediately explosive bestseller. And I kept saying to our sales director, well, sorry, you know, where's our bestseller? You know, what's happening? Um, eventually it did ignite. But then on the Cape list, which is a literary list, there was a book called Holy Blood, Holy Grail by three authors, which was nonfiction. And they claimed that he had stolen their idea. I mean, every fiction writer will read history, research, whatever. But they sounded as if they were getting quite serious about it and might take it to court. So I thought, well, I haven't ever met them, so I'd better take them out to dinner, which I did. Sorry, you just asked them out for dinner. You yes. just feel like, let's talk about it. Well, their book, their book, Holy Blood, Holy Grail, that had been published, you know, 20 years beforehand, had had a bump because of um, Dan and Brown. So they'd sold a couple of hundred thousand copies and now they're going to sue him for a share of the film rights and, you know, whatever. So I thought, I better nip this one in the bud. So I invited them to dinner. Uh, one of the authors didn't want to have anything to do with it. The two came and they were strange. But in any case, they were not to be, you know, put off. They were going to sue and they did. And so poor Dan had to come over to the UK and every day I'd get up first thing in the morning. I was one of the only people who could talk to him because anyone who was going to give evidence, like his editor, publicist, were not, were not allowed to talk to him. So I looked after him, picked him up at the hotel, went into the Old Bailey, sat next to him, 
And about halfway through the trial, it was pretty clear to me that they were losing. And and I said to our brilliant lawyer and barrister, they were our little teeny. We had this little kind of family. I always remember the barrister used to drink nothing but green tea. And I, you know, I thought this was really before green tea was famous. You know what I mean? It sort of kept him going. And um and I said, look, they're losing. Should I have a conversation with their agent and sort of, you know, see if we can just calm this down before Dan has to go on the stand? And they said, yeah, we think that's a good idea. So I sort of hung about in the corridor until she walked along. She was not an experienced agent. And I said to her, look, things aren't going very well. Why don't we just walk away now? You know, they've had their moment in the sunlight. They've said what they had to say. You pay your costs, we'll pay our costs, and, you know, everything's fine. The book is a bestseller. And she said, well, I'll take it to them. And they said no. And I said, well, if they lose, they will be ruined because, you know, I can't stop the corporation wanting, you know, all, all its money back, basically, for the court case, which was many millions. And she said, I know, but they want to carry on. And so they did. They carried on and they lost. And... um the minute they lost, Dan went out the back of um, the old Bailey and got a flight back. And so I was left um, to make a statement. I had some people, you know, writing a statement and we were walking through the old Bailey and there was no one around. And I said to the guy who was with me, everyone's gone home, it's, it's all over. Luckily, there won't be many people out there for my statement. And he looked at me as if I was this kind of an idiot that I sort of absolutely knew nothing. And as I literally stepped outside the courthouse, there were possibly 300 journalists, you know, television cameras banked up. And I had to do that, you know, on the courtroom steps. So I kind of did the statement and then jumped into a cab. And then they appealed and they lost the appeal and they were ruined. It was really tragic, really awful. The problem of hubris, you know, you have a success and then everybody wants a piece of it. You really strike me as a, always looking for a solution, like a creative problem solver. Like even when they were trying to see you, you're trying to figure out a way to help them. And going from in the courtroom, Dan leaving, you standing up there by yourself. It seems like as a CEO, you're doing so many different types of tasks with so many different types of people. Did you ever feel lonely? Yeah, as I said before, you know, when you become a leader of something, all your friends, your mates drop away. I mean, you're still friendly, but because the dynamic of the relationship has changed, you know, there are not people you can confide in. So you have to find other groups of like-minded people, you know, that you can talk to or discuss problems with. Um, but yes, I think everybody says, and it's not a truism, that being a CEO is very lonely, and it is very lonely because ultimately the buck stops with you. I want to switch gears a little bit to you as a working mother. I'm a working mother. There are many people in this room that are probably working mothers too. You had quite a rigorous schedule as a working mother despite being on this crazy ride, like I said, flying all over the world, meeting different people. What was it like for you and how did you manage your time so that you could fulfill your role as a parent as well as your role as a CEO? Well, it was different in those days. I mean, I, you didn't get much maternity leave for a start. 
So that was just a fact. And I, publishing is well known for lunches. And so the first thing I did was I don't do lunch. I have lunch at my desk, which you know, had a lot of kind of brickbats thrown at me. Gail won't have a drink. She won't come out to lunch. She won't do this. She won't do that. So I had to be more effective during the day. And then I would always try and come home if I could, even if it was just for an hour, to see my daughters before they went to bed. And then I would work or go out or do whatever. But it was quite difficult. And anything that I did was ridiculed. I always remember um, Grace, who's there, once said to me, and it's true, you did, you said, well, I, I said, what do you want for your birthday? I don't know, seven, eight. Um, I want a desk like you, mum. So I bought you a little desk. It was, I thought it was very sweet. Oh, no, 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 the Daily Mail again. You know, Gilwyn Buxton brainwashing her daughter into, you know. Being a little, yeah, exactly. baby boss. Exactly. And, and I just, you know, I just thought it was the most natural thing. She, you know, constantly seen me at my desk. So she said she wanted a desk. Um, so I think it's tough being a working mother. I think uh, I did what I could and I, I realized that I couldn't be perfect. In fact, I was probably the opposite of perfect. Um, cause it's quite stressful. I think I was too stressed as a mother. Um, I tried to keep the weekends as free as I could, but you know, you kind of look back and think, oh my God, I just don't know how I got through those years. Um, they were difficult. But I always say to women, try not to internalize perfection. It's impossible to be a perfect executive and a perfect mother. I think if you're doing your best, if, you, if, you're, doing, if you're good enough, that is an amazing achievement. But the one thing that I always thought was important was to keep a thread to the dynamics of what, what was going on with my children. I just, if you lose that thread, then I think, you know, which occasionally I did, then you're in trouble. But as long as that thread is there and you, you know, you have a space in your mind where it is sacrosanct that you're worrying, because it is mostly worry, um, about your kids, I think... I think they will, when they grow up, at least I hope they do, forgive you for all the kind of shortcomings, which I'm sure were there. Showing <laughs> <laughs> <Fair> up. <laughs> this perfectionism, desire to be perfect, that you describe, I notice it waxing and waning within various generations. So, you know, we have trends with Gen Z right now where there is seemingly no desire to have this what is a perfect woman or what is a perfect person in the workplace. And then you have, you know, I would say I'm a millennial, older millennial. Mm. How would you notice the differences between the generations from yours to mine to Gen Z in how we view ourselves as women and how we view our ambitions and goals around work? I think they change hugely. And there was a moment when I published Sheryl Sandberg's book, Lean In, which in the day was a huge bestseller. I mean, obviously... Chen Z has moved on from that now. But for me, having a woman like Sheryl Sandberg at the time at Facebook say that she felt not worthy, that she felt insecure, that, you know, just being honest about those things, I found very liberating. Um, and I was at a 
a speech that she gave and she was talking to a group of women and said, you know, they were talking about work-life balance. And she looked at me and said, Gail, of course, you know all about that. And I said, well, yes, I do, but I think it's different for you because my generation, we were escaping from our mother's shattered dreams. You know, our mothers were women of the 50s, um, 40s and 50s, were stuck basically um, in a domestic role and bloody angry about it. So I didn't really, I mean, there are a couple of women in business, but very, very few. So my generation, I talked to women of my generation, um, we were blinkered. We knew we couldn't go back. The status quo was not an option. So we had to go forward. And then you had Shell's generation that came next with all these options. Oh, I could do this. I could do that. You know, and it suddenly, and I used to call them the angst generation because they were always worrying about things, worrying about this, worrying about that. And, you know, of course we worried about things and I felt guilty, but I wasn't angst driven all the time. Not, not about, you know, what I was doing in terms of being an executive or a mother. So I think it changes. And I love the fact that, you know, younger women nowadays just put two fingers up and say, I'm just going to do it my way. You know, I mean, none of this stuff is relevant to me. I mean, in America, it's a real problem getting women um, or and men, for that matter, back into the office. I mean, no one wants to come into the office at all. I mean, luckily in Europe, people are beginning to come back. But post-COVID, I think everything has changed. And you basically have to completely reinvent the way in which you do business and you onboard people. And I have no idea why it's so different in the US to the UK or Germany or France or whatever, but um, I just feel like I'm watching an extraordinary film that's being fast forwarded in rather a terrifying way and things are different and each generation is different. Um, and I wouldn't begin to comment on young women such as you guys here in the audience, but it'd be interesting to hear from you if we have a chance. Definitely. We are running out of time, so I'm going to ask my last question, which is a bit of a random wild card, but we've seen so much change in media and you've seen so much in the last three decades, really big trends and disruptions from, as we said earlier, Amazon, ebook, Kindle, you know, different ways of distributing books. And now everyone is terrified about AI and there's been a lot of talk about journalists and editors and copy editors losing their jobs. How do you feel like the world of publishing and books and media is going to change with AI? Do you have a thought on it? Well, it's already changed. I mean, in terms of how we get books discovered, you know, using um, algorithms. Yuval Harari is one of our authors and I chair a thing for Bertelsmann called Creativity Group globally and um, we had everybody in our offices and I knew Yuval was in the office. And so I said, shall I ask him if he'll come up and I'll just ask him a question about creativity? And he'll say, well, yes, that sounds great. So he came in and I said, okay, Yuval, and this is about, I don't know, 10 years ago, maybe eight years ago, what's the future of creativity? And he basically said, machines will write better books, paint better pictures, make better music, you know, just do everything better. So I said, oh, thanks a lot. I'm sorry I asked you. That was very depressing. Um, I am optimistic about the human spirit. I think that clearly we can see 
you know, a microcosm of what the future might be like um, with, uh, you know, with, with AI. And I use it and I'm amazed by it. And I think we need to embrace it, which I think we are doing. But I think what the human brain and imagination does with very little data is open our eyes as we go back to you in Wolverhampton, me in Paddington in our libraries to an amazing world of opportunity, whereas the machine has all the data in the world and can actually only answer ultimately fairly narrow you know, narrow questions, at least at the moment. So I feel very optimistic about the human imagination and the human spirit. And I don't know how it will triumph, but I believe it will. And on that incredible note, let's give you a round of applause. Thank you so much, Gail. Thank you. I am forever optimistic about the human spirit for sure. Executive Realness is brought to you by The Stack World, a media and community platform where you can learn from powerful women. Join The Stack World today and build your new peer network with thousands of members who are all looking to grow themselves personally and professionally. Download The Stack World app now on iOS or Android. You'll find the links in the show notes.